Let's pray together one more time. Father, we come to you knowing that you are a gracious Father who has spoken to us as your children. You have inscripturated this revelation in the Bible and enabled us to hear your voice. This is not just what the Holy Spirit said. This is what the Holy Spirit says. You are speaking to us this morning from this passage as though you yourself were speaking it in time right now. It's just as relevant at this moment as it was the moment the Holy Spirit inspired John to write it centuries ago. So we ask that you would draw near to us and let us hear your voice echoing in our souls and our hearts this morning as you shepherd us through your word. And we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at the end of the movie uh, Schindler's List, it's a little bit dated, a few decades ago, Oscar Schindler, a Nazi factory owner, is surrounded by the Jewish people that he saved during the Holocaust. And he has to flee because it's the end of the war. And the saved people wanted to thank him for saving their lives. And so they presented him with a ring that read the following. Whoever saves one life saves the world entire. He looks at all the faces of the people that are alive now because of his actions, having saved more than 1,100 people. Yet, instead of feeling accomplishment, instead of feeling a sense of pride, instead of feeling like that was a great thing, he looks at the gold pen, his car, and everything of value that he has, and he sees them in the currency of lives, lives that he wasn't able to spare. And he says, I could have gotten more out. And his Jewish manager, who actually wrote the list that saved lives, reassures him that he did so much, but Schindler leaves inconsolable. Why was this man who saved so many lives so miserable? He was convicted by his selfish acts and motives instead of satisfied by his loving ones. And with the new eyes that he had, he looked at his good works and he knew that they were lacking. So Schindler looks back over the course of the war and he realized that he wasted so much money that it could have been used to save another life. And so his heart condemned him. I think that's very similar to the experience that John is describing in our passage this morning. When we look over the course of our lives, when we consider the high standards that God's word calls us to as his people, it's very easy to grow discouraged, to feel like you're not measuring up, and to feel like you're always a step or two behind, and even the gains you have feel like they're losses. And so what are Christians supposed to do when we're confronted in an ongoing way with the simple reality of our own failures? Well, John's going to talk to us about that this morning. You know, in previous weeks, we have considered John's call to us as believers to examine ourselves to see if we're living pure and upright lives and shunning sin. I don't know about you, but... I don't often feel like I'm doing very well in shunning my sin and fighting my sin. I feel like I'm fighting it, but I feel like I'd be fighting it more. I could be doing more. I could be pursuing purity with greater vigor and greater hunger and greater passion than I do. And just as righteous living is evidence 
according to John, that we have been born of God. So, as we saw last week, love for other Christians in a self-sacrificial way is evidence that we have passed out of death into life. So inevitably, when we examine our hearts and we examine our lives in light of the standards of righteous living and in light of the standards of sacrificial love, our consciences will raise issues that challenge us. And this is why John discusses the condemning heart in today's passage. Having been called to the high standard of personal righteousness and self-sacrificial love throughout the greater part of chapter 3, he now gets in chapter 3, verse 19, to remind us of what to do when our hearts accuse us of not being Christians when we see how short we fall from the standard of righteous living and the standard we fall of how poorly we love. That's why this passage exists, because John is a good pastor. He understands that when he raises the standard high and he preaches God's standard as it should be preached, not sacrificing righteousness, not sacrificing love just to make it comfortable and easy, but actually raising it up, he knows the way our hearts as God's people are going to respond to that, which is going to be to be condemned, to feel condemned. And so what do you do when you're faced with that reality? What do you do when you look back over your week, your month, your years, your decades, and you say, you know what? I haven't fought sin as aggressively as I need to fight it. I haven't loved as sacrificially as I need to. What do you do with that? Well, pay attention this morning. John's going to pastor you and tell you exactly what you need to do. So we're going to look at three things this morning. Here's the first one, the reality of the condemned heart. The reality of the condemned heart. Now, the heart in the Bible is not a biological organ. When, Paul, or, or when John uses the, the term heart, he's not talking about that thing that sits in the center of our chest that pumps blood to the, all the systems of our body. But rather, he's talking about the entire inner life, the entire inner soul, the entire inner man or woman, all that comprises our thinking and feeling and emotions and the things that our actions and behavior are derived from. One writer calls the heart God's monitor for the soul. It includes the conscience built within it. And part of the function of our heart is to show us where we have gone astray, and where we are guilty, and also where we haven't, and where we are innocent. So the heart and the conscience is a great gift from God to us. However, as John says here in our passage in verse 21, the heart may lack confidence. Do you see that? Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So what is a condemned heart? A condemned heart lacks confidence before God, lacks confidence that it can approach God, lacks confidence that it's obeying God, lacks confidence that it can draw near to God, lacks confidence that it may even be saved. That's the condemned heart. And John's going to tell us what to do about that. So the condemned heart is a reality for us as God's people. He's writing to Christians. He says, beloved. These are God's people. And he says that God's people can have condemned hearts. Two quick things on that. 
First, the condemned heart is a reality. The condemned heart is a reality. A couple more passages showing us this. Look at verse 19. He says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. If the condemned heart wasn't a reality, why would you have to examine yourself to see if you're a Christian? And why would you have to reassure your heart that you are? It's a reality. And John says in verse 20, for whenever our heart condemns us, whenever, not if ever, whenever, this is a common experience for all of God's people. It's not if we will need to reassure our hearts, but when we will need to reassure our hearts. The condemned heart is a reality. John Stott says that John's use of the word whenever seems to suggest that, quote, it may not be an unusual or infrequent experience for the Christian's serene assurance to be disturbed, end quote. And it isn't. If you have lived as a Christian for any period of time, which most of you in this room have been a Christian for some years, walk with the Lord a long time, you have known days, seasons of doubt. And if you haven't, how faithfully are you trying to follow Jesus? Because if you, at it, to any degree, try to follow Jesus in the way he calls you to follow him, you are going to doubt. Because his standard and his call and his requirements are so all-encompassing. They're so whole life requiring. So the condemned heart is a reality. Second one, a condemned heart is not an inevitability. A condemned heart is not an inevitability. Notice verse 21. He says, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So not, it's not a requirement to be a Christian to walk around feeling like you're, you have, you're condemned all the time. John doesn't want you to live in that reality. He doesn't want you to occupy that space any more than you have to. He wants you to get out of that sense of and feeling of condemnation and into a place of security and confidence and assurance. So that's good news. It's not an inevitability. You're not condemned, so to speak, to walk around feeling condemned. The condemned heart, though likely, is not mandatory. God does not command you to have a condemned heart. It isn't required. Like every other human faculty, our heart has been affected by the fall and cannot always be trusted. Listen, we can make the conscience sensitive or we can make the conscience oversensitive. Let me turn, let's turn and look at two ways the conscience can kind of go haywire. Um, we're in 1 John, so turn back to 1 Timothy and see where Paul is talking about some false teachers who, whose conscience is not properly functioning and are trying to get the Christians in those churches to adopt the same conscience. And he says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, talking about these false teachers or people who will depart from the faith, he says, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, Okay, so think about this. Sometimes we make the conscience 
insensitive when we develop a habit of ignoring its voice of warning so that the voice gets weaker and weaker and weaker and finally disappears. That's a seared conscience. It's insensitive. However, we can also make the conscience oversensitive by, make, by, by filling it with too many rules that are actually matters of opinion, not matters of God's standards of right and wrong. And that's what he's condemning in verse 3. So look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. He says, Their consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving for it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. So there's an oversensitive conscience, a conscience that's saying, I can't partake in the things that God has said are good, like certain foods or marriage. And there's plenty of other examples that could be given, but those are the two Paul chooses. So sometimes the conscience can be convicted condemned about things it should not feel convicted or condemned about. And sometimes it can be insensitive and unfeeling to the things that it should feel condemned about. So I only turn you there and underscore that to make it clear that the conscience needs to be guided by the word of God. And we're going to get there in a minute. But the condemned heart is a reality, but the condemned heart is not an inevitability. And thus it will sometimes excuse us inappropriately, leading to a false sense of innocence and can sometimes accuse us falsely, leading to a false sense of guilt. So the heart is not infallible. But let me say this. The balance is that even though your conscience is fallible, it is prone to error, it is generally always right to follow it. We should do what our conscience says until we are convinced from Scripture that it needs adjusting. But your conscience is not identical to the voice of God. So what we must labor for is not a seared conscience, which is the result of ignoring it with sin, or a weakened conscience, which is the result of not informing it with Scripture, but rather a strong conscience through calibrating it by educating it with the truth of God's Word. So that's where we've got to get. We've got to press in and question our consciences to see if they align with this. Because there will be some things that your heart condemns you for that you should feel condemned for. Like your lack of sacrificial love. But your heart may take you beyond even what the Bible requires of that. You may say, well, I believe my my life is marked by sacrificial love. But John makes it very clear in our previous passage, verses 11 through 18, that when he's talking about sacrificial love, he's talking about meeting the needs of believers. He's not saying giving believers everything they want, making sure every believer that's in your sphere of life is always happy because you're just laying your life down for them. That's not what he's talking about. But sometimes our consciences can be condemned because we haven't met all of our other believers' wants. And that has nothing to do with the Word of God. In fact, the Word of God may call those Christians who are feeling like other Christians aren't meeting their needs or wants to question whether they're even a Christian because they're so consumed with themselves. So, the point is, is the, the condemned heart is a reality. It's not an inevitability. 
but it is real. It is there. We need to inform it and dress it with Scripture, and that's what John's going to do with the rest of our, our text this morning. So we've seen the reality of the condemned heart. Now let's move to point number two, the reasons for a condemned heart. These are in verses 22 and 24, which we will get to in just a moment. James Boyce, a pastor who's now in heaven, wrote the following. Self-condemnation can be due to a number of factors. It can be a matter of disposition. Some people are just more introspective and melancholy than others. Or it can be a matter of health. How a person feels inevitably affects how he thinks or she thinks. It may be due to a specific sin. It may be due to circumstances, end quote. So James Boyce, good pastor, says condemned heart can be, there can be all kinds of reasons for it. It can be circumstantial. It can be because of sin. It can be physical. It could be uh, a matter of disposition. But what are the reasons that John gives? Not that those reasons are wrong that Boyce points out, but what are the reasons that John gives? Well, I want you to follow me, okay? So have the text in front of you. Be looking at 1 John chapter 3, verses 21 through 24, and I'm going to try to show you how this condemned heart gets created. There's a sequence that John gives from verses 21 through 24, and I want to walk you through that sequence. First of all, look at verse 21. He says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So here's the sequence that John gives. He says, A non-condemned heart is rooted in confidence in God. And then in verse 22, Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. Then he says, that confidence in God is rooted in prayer, in answered prayer. And then in verse 22, he says, answered prayer is rooted in obedience. We do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, verse 23, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. And then this obedience brings with it a sweet testimony of the Spirit that we are God's children. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commands abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So I believe that this sequence gives us insight into how a condemned heart is formed. He's talking positively in verses 21 through 24. He says, okay, we don't have a condemned heart. How that, where'd that come from? We have confidence before God. Where'd that confidence from God come for? Answered prayer. Where'd that answer prayer come for? An obedient life. Where'd that obedient life come from? Testimony of the Spirit that we are God's children. Okay, so walk backwards. If that's the positive way forward, walk backwards and you get to how you get a condemned heart. Our heart is condemning us. Why? Because we lack confidence in God. Why do we lack confidence in God? Because prayer seems to be obstructed. We don't feel like we can approach him. We don't feel like he's going to be pleased with us or answer us. So we don't go to him. Why don't we go to him? We're living disobediently. We're living disobediently. We're failing to keep his commands. You should feel condemned when, you don't, when you're not obeying God. That's a gift. It's a mercy. It's not the, don't think of condemnation as in the sense of, justification or not, like I'm not justified, but think of feelings of guilt, okay? Now, why, so your heart's condemning you. Why? Because you lack confidence before God. Why do you lack confidence before God? Because your prayers aren't being answered or you don't feel like you can approach God in prayer. Why don't you feel like you can approach God in prayer? Because I'm not keeping his word. I'm not obeying him. So what's the result of failing to keep his commandments? It's the absence of the Spirit's testimony and reassurance, okay? 
Verse 24. So that's the reason our hearts get in these sorts of conditions. Because we don't have the sweet inner testimony of the Spirit telling us that we are children of God. And why, are, why is that? Because we're grieving Him. And why are we grieving Him? Because we're not obeying God. And, and what's the fruit of not obeying God? Well, obstructed prayer. Psalm 66, verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not listen. David says in Psalm 32, when I kept silent about my sins, my bones wasted away. And then he says, so how do we, how do we, that, that leads to a lack of confidence in God and that leads to a condemned heart. So that's the reason. Those are some of the operating principles in our souls of what's going on. We're lacking the Spirit's assurance because we're failing to obey, because we're not praying, because we're lacking confidence. All those things go together. But the bottom line is the condemned heart happens when we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. But here's another reality. The condemned heart can happen even when you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. All right? So it's not just that, but it's both. And so you can be doing what you're called to do, but doubting the way you're doing it. And if you're doing enough, and if you're doing all that God requires of you to do. And so this is in part why John is writing. John is writing both to us who have insensitive consciences who need to be resensitized, and he's also writing to us who have oversensitive consciences to reassure. And so those are some of the reasons that John gives for a condemned heart. Now, let's spend the rest of our time talking about a response, a response to a condemned heart. We've seen the reality. We've seen the reasons. Now let's see the response. Verse 23 points the way forward. Verse 23 points the way forward. So look at verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Simple, right? (laughs) Believe in Jesus, obey Jesus. Now, let me say to some of you here in this room this morning, who feel condemned by God, but you're not walking with the Lord, you're not engaging in discipleship to Jesus, you're not, uh, you're not following him, you're not a Christian, you should feel condemned because you are condemned. God says that when we, according to John chapter 3, verse 36, when we do not believe in the Son, the wrath of God remains on us. And so the key here for you and the good news for you is that you don't have to leave this service this morning condemned by God. There is a gospel that we've seen enacted in baptism and declared in song and prayed this morning reminding us that our salvation is rooted in another person. And he bore our condemnation if you will believe in him. And when you believe in him, you get his righteousness, and he gets your condemnation. So that's why John can, or Paul can say in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. 
But for those who aren't in Christ Jesus, there is condemnation. So, I encourage you, believe in Jesus right where you are. Bow your head. Call out to God. Say, forgive me. Receive me. Because I'm placing my faith and confidence in Christ alone. So that's one way forward. But this is for Christians too. It's not just for non-Christians or unbelievers. It says, this is his commandment that we, we Christians, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. See, Christians, we got to keep believing too. So we just believed. We believe. We believe in an ongoing way. It says, believe in the name of Jesus Christ and love one another. Now, this verse encompasses the whole Christian life. It's a call for faith and the expression of that faith in action. See, if either component is missing, we will be condemned. We will feel condemned, and we ought to feel condemned. Because what you have, if you don't have faith, and faith expressing itself in love, is not Christianity. Christianity is faith in Christ expressed in love. A life of good deeds and activism is not a Christian life if that life of good deeds and activism is not springing from faith in Jesus Christ. And neither is a Christian, a Christian who, if he professes to believe in Jesus, but doesn't have a corresponding pursuit of a Christ-like lifestyle. It's not a perfect lifestyle, but it is a real one. So let's see how John helps us respond to a condemned heart, point the way forward in these two aspects. Belief in the name of the Lord, or in his son, Jesus Christ, and love for one another, just as God commanded us. So let's take them one at a time. We'll start with love first, even though love is the fruit, not the root. Okay? And that's very important to point out because sometimes the reason we get in these modes of condemnation and is because we put the fruit before the root. We start to go after love, and I'm just going to change. I'm going to try to be a better person. I'm going to try to get after this. But it's not springing from repentance toward God. It's not springing from faith. It's not, spring, it's not none of that. It's all self-generated and self-motivated. And you'll fail because Jesus told us we would fail. John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Don't try to do this thing without me. Apart from me, you can do nothing, including live for me. So sometimes we, we get ahead of and we don't need to do that. Make sure we're rooted. And then the fruit comes. But we're going to start with the fruit because I want to spend most of the time on the root. That's why we're starting with the fruit. All right, so love for one another. Love for one another. He says, okay, you got a condemned heart? Do what I told you last week. <laughs> love your brothers and sisters. Love them. Right? Isn't that the linchpin? Look, look at verse 19. By this, by this, by this, we shall know. What's the this? What he just said. What did he just say? Look at verse 17 and 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. So that's why he says in verse 23, love one another, just as he commanded us. So we're not getting out of this. He's saying, okay, I, I understand, brothers and sisters, you feel condemned in light of what I just said about practical righteousness and fighting sin and whoever doesn't fight sin is of the devil. And 
No one who claims to live a life of sin can claim to be born of God, and no one can claim to be a Christian who's not living a life of sacrificial love for other people. All right, in light of all that, I know your heart's going to condemn you. It's going to happen, but how do you respond? Well, one way you respond is by doing it, obeying what I told you to do, doing what I said. So the connection is clear. You're going to reassure your heart before him, verse 19, by obeying verse 18. As long as you keep talking Christianity, as long as you keep keeping it in the head, keeping it in the Bible, keeping it in the prayers, but never put it in the life, you're going to be condemned. You're going to feel condemned. There's no other way around it. And so, as C.S. Lewis says, obedience is the key that opens every door. Obedience is the key that opens every door. It does. Just small steps of obedience, and God meets us with massive grace. You ever experienced that? Feeling condemned? I should share the gospel with my coworker. I should speak up for Jesus sometime. I haven't in like a decade. And you start to pray about it. You start to feel a little con- get guilty about it, and you're, I should. I don't really need to. And, and maybe it doesn't go so well and, and whatever, but you keep trying, and you're stumbling along, and all of a sudden, God does some amazing stuff like, wow, they wanted to know more, and God seems to be working in their life, and that's unreal. Or you taking like this little step of obedience in fighting sin. You say, okay, I, I, the way I'm trying to fight my sin right now in this particular area is not working, so I'm going to go public with it. I'm going to tell a brother or sister about it. I'm going to get them to pray, and you just experience help, right? You start to feel like, I, I, I don't feel like I'm enslaved. I feel like I can get out of it. Or... You're feeling convicted because of your lack of love and I'm not doing all that I should be doing and I should be doing more and I'm just too self-focused and all that stuff. I'm just going to try to get other-oriented. I'm going to try to call somebody or talk to somebody or care about somebody or show some interest in somebody and God all of a sudden just starts to fill your soul with joy. You know, what you're, you know why? Because you're doing what you're made to do and the Spirit is testifying that you're a child of God and you're coming alive again. So obedience is the key that opens every door. Obey. Obey, obey, obey. See, some of, some of you in this room, perhaps, are waiting for God to zap you to make you a Christian. You're just sitting around like, well, I don't really have any love for God. I don't really have a desire to get baptized. I know I should. Um, I kind of, you know, I want to follow Jesus, but I don't. Listen, you're never going to get anywhere with God with that. Ever. Ever. You're going to have to step out in faith and say, I'm gonna, it makes me so uncomfortable to even think about the thought of baptism, but I want to become a Christian and I'm going public with it. And you do. You step forward. You say, I want to be, I want to be one of those. I want to be a Christian. I want to follow the Lord Jesus. And you start to take steps and you're saying, okay, and I need to repent of some things. I need to quit hanging out with these people or I need to fix this or I need to get after, just start obeying God in certain ways, the ways that your conscience is bothering you. And God starts to work in your life. And it's all generated by God. It's all empowered by the Holy Spirit. But it's, it's you who's acting and taking a step. And so that's what I would encourage us to do. That's one way to respond to a condemned heart is to extend yourself in obedience. And specifically, John's example here is to love one another. Now, let's spend the rest of the time talking about the root. The first part that he says in verse 23 He says, and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And then he unpacks it further in verse 20, what he means by that. Look at verse 20. For whenever our hearts condemn us, 
God is greater. God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. So I think this is, this is, an, this is an exercise in faith. This is an exercise in looking out to God, looking up to God, recognizing that God has something to say here. I'm believing in him. So we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. We recognize that God is greater than our hearts, that he knows everything. Now, what does that phrase mean? It's not an easy phrase to understand. And there have been different interpretations of it throughout church history. In the Reformation, since we were talking about the Reformation earlier and 500 years ago, the reformers like Augustine and Calvin, they loved to, to take this verse and, there's, uh, and say that God is greater than our hearts means that if you think your heart condemns you, think about God. God is even greater than your heart, and he condemns you. He knows everything. You only know a part. That's true. Okay, that's a biblical truth. God knows you better than you know yourself. But I don't think that's the point here. I think the point is comfort. I think the point is reassurance. I think the, the point is, even when your heart condemns you, you have an ally somewhere else. Didn't he say that in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1? My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have someone greater than our sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins. He's greater. He's bigger than our sin. And I think that's what he's getting at here. God is greater than your condemning heart. And he knows everything. Our hearts are not the most reliable indicator of how well we are doing spiritually. God is greater and more knowledgeable than our own hearts. He knows everything including our secret motives and deepest resolves. And it is implied here that he will be more merciful toward us than our hearts will. His omniscience, his all-knowingness should relieve us, not terrify us. He loved you while you were his enemy. And how much more, now that you are reconciled, will he love you as his child? even his broken, weary, sometimes disobedient child. Because God knows everything about us, God is sometimes more merciful than us than we are with ourselves. God, since God is greater than our accusing conscience in the sense that he has a greater knowledge of it than we do, we can be confident that he understands our weaknesses and he loves us in spite of them. God calls us to do what we can and leave the rest to him. We must do our best to love others and live obediently, all the while knowing that God knows that our often weak attempts to obey his commands spring from nevertheless a true allegiance to him, a real love for him, a real faith in him that's just marred by sinful human weakness and frailty. God recognizes that our flawed, inadequate efforts to love others are genuine acts of faith and love. He knows all about the people we attempt to love and the situations that have given rise to their needs and the sins that we are trying to fight. So essentially, he says, what we're called to do when our consciences condemn us is put our trust back in Christ. Put our trust back in Christ and his acts on our behalf. Look at verse 23 again. We believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 20, we realize that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. So Jesus knows us fully. He knows all the sins that we would do the entire course of our life and he stayed on Calvary Road. 
He went to the cross for us, knowing all the sins you would commit in the next decades that you know nothing about. And yet he did. He knew all of them, of all of his people, from all time. And did that stop him from going to be condemned for us? No, it did not stop him. So we remember that he's our advocate with the Father. He's the propitiation for our sins. According to chapter 2, verse 12, our sins are forgiven. According to chapter 3, verse 2, we are God's children now. And according to verse 21 in our own text this morning, we're beloved. We're beloved. You see that? John doesn't just throw these phrases around. Verse 21, beloved. Beloved. That means you are loved. You are loved. Take the Elizabethan, Elizabethan, Elizabethan Victorian out of it. Just You're loved. Listen, loved ones, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So he reassures us. This is no better illustrated than in Pilgrim's Progress, in Christian's battle with Apollyon. Remember the story? Apollyon accuses Christian. He says, he really, he really gets him when he starts drawing out all the ways he almost obeyed. Right? Satan loves to do this. He loves to take your sincere, imperfect obedience and treat it like disobedience. Know him. Know him. Know his voice. He will take your sincere obedience and treat it like it was wholesale disobedience. This is what he does with Christian in, in John Bunyan's allegorizing of the attacks of Satan on, his, on God's people. And Satan's Apollyon here, and Notice what he says. Apollyon accused, you almost fainted when you first set out, when you almost choked in the swamp of despond. You also attempted to get rid of your burden in the wrong way instead of patiently waiting for the prince to take it off. You sinfully slept and lost your scroll. You were almost persuaded to go back at the sight of the lions. And when you talk of your journey and of what you have heard and seen, you inwardly desire your own glory in all that you do and say. So he says, here's all the ways your obedience was imperfect. Now, what does Christian say? Christian agreed. He says, all this is true and much more that you have failed to mention. But the prince whom I now serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. Besides, these infirmities possessed me while I was in your country. For there I allowed them to come in. But I have groaned under them, have been sorry for them, and have obtained pardon from my prince. That's how he fights. He doesn't try to say, these are all the ways that I've obeyed to, to counteract all those ways I kind of obeyed. He says, no, it's not even an issue. I don't even think about that. All I think about is Jesus. Karen Job's commentator says, the apostle knows that his readers need to quiet their hearts in order to continue in their faith in Christ and in their love for others. For a heart that constantly accuses us of disappointing God will erode our resolves to love, and it will keep us from enjoying our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Feelings of inadequacy or failure will impede our prayer life by making us shy away from God. John's remedy for quieting a restless heart is surprisingly simple to state, but possibly difficult to achieve. Trust God, who knows all things, and he knows us better than we know ourselves. Don't turn away from faith in Christ or from loving others. Remain in him. So, in conclusion, there are two ways in which we regain our assurance when we have a condemned heart. No matter what the reality is, no matter what the reasons are, our response is clear. The first of these 
is to look back over our lives for evidence of love for other believers and seek to continue to practice that in the present. Finding specific instances of where we have sacrificed and also how we can sacrifice. And even as we do this, however, we will find an occasion for our hearts to be troubled because we know there's no friend like Jesus. Friends lay their lives down according to Jesus. Greater love has no man than this than he lay down his life for his friends. But listen, there's no man like Jesus. No one, the godliest among us will never lay our lives down for people like Jesus laid down his life for people. And so we will never be all that our Savior is. But we don't have to walk around feeling condemned and troubled by that. We can see how far short of God's requirements that we remain, but even if we have come even if we've come a long way in our sanctification. And ironically, the longer you live the Christian life and the further you progress in sanctification, the more prone you are to a condemned heart. You know why? Because you're growing. The evidence that you're growing is because God's holiness is getting more and more big to you and your sinfulness is getting more and more big to you. You're walking in the light and the light's revealing a ton of dirt. And so, ironically, the godliest people are those who are most prone to having a condemned heart. So when we find ourselves in those positions, we must remind ourselves to do something different than Oscar Schindler did. Not having done all that we've done, we don't need to walk away feeling condemned. Not having done all that we've done we remember that our confidence is not in us doing for others all that could be done, but Christ doing for us all that needed to be done. Okay, that's our confidence. Not in us doing for others all that could be done, but Christ doing for us all that needed to be done. And it's in that, and it's in him, that we place our hope. What though the accuser roar of sins that I have done, We know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the ways in which you minister to us through your word, speaking to our consciences, speaking to our hearts, shaping them, calibrating them by your word. How we pray that you would use your word more and more to chisel and form Christ deeply in our lives. Help us to recognize, to have eyes to see by the help of your spirit, the realities of a condemned heart, the reasons for a condemned heart. Help us to wage war against our sin, to seek to live ever more obediently to you, striving day by day to put to death what remains in us that is contrary to you, striving to cultivate a life of love by the enabling power of your Holy Spirit and abiding in the vine of Jesus to lay our lives down in greater sacrificial ways. But God, when we see how far we've fallen, our hearts condemn us. But we thank you that you are greater than our hearts. We thank you that you know everything, both the motives that were there in the imperfect obedience, as well as the reality of the sin. And we thank you that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Because before the throne of God above, we have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives 
and pleads for me. Thank you for his intercession. Thank you for his advocacy. Thank you for his mediator, mediating between us and you in such a way that it is truly finished. All that needed to be done has been done, even though we lack doing all that we have been called to do. And even if we were to do everything that we've been called to do, Jesus, you've taught us to say, even then, we're unprofitable servants who have only done our duty. Doesn't merit us a dime before you. So thank you for your grace. Thank you that your grace is greater than all of our sin. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.